Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Could I invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures and to turn with me in the book of Acts to chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And as you're doing that, allow me to greet you on behalf of uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, where uh, I have the privilege of serving these days. Uh, It's a privilege to be back with you again, particularly as your presbytery ordains Matt as one of your pastors. I hold your entire pastoral team in high esteem, and um, so personally delighted and grateful that you've chosen Chris to lead that team and now added Matt to one of its number. An ordination is a great opportunity for us to remind ourselves about the mission and the priorities and the patterns that Jesus has prescribed for the church and for the pastors that He has appointed to lead the church. And tonight, I would like to do that by drawing back the curtain on the story of the first church plant in the continent of Europe, the Apostle Paul's mission to Philippi. And the historic story of that church plant, which was so strategic for the kingdom of God, is found in Acts chapter 16. I invite you to follow along as I read the account to you. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, Paul also came to Derb and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance for their observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So... The churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. But when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed was a place, there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stalks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God." The chief end for which the church ought to exist, the chief end for which the individual church members ought to live, is the evangelization or conversion of the world. That was the vision communicated by Alexander Duff as he returned in 1836 from India where he had served as the Church of Scotland's missionary there. Duff's story in India is one of great energy and great fruit, but when Duff returned to Scotland in 1836, he found the church apathetic to dead to the cause of world missions. The winds of liberal theology had begun to blow, and modernism was teaching that, well, since God is going to save everybody anyway, why pay the price of evangelism and the cost of world missions? And so church leaders were not enthusiastic about Duff touring the country, sharing his passion for global missions. But they made the mistake of allowing him to preach to the General Assembly in 1836. And Duff preached for two hours. Don't panic. It won't be that long. 
By the time Duff had finished that sermon, the church's passion, the church's vision for missions had been renewed. Subsequently, he preached a sermon called Missions, the Chief End of the Church, which makes the stakes crystal clear. In it, he said this, And what is the whole history of the Christian church? But one perpetual proof and illustration of the grand proposition that an evangelistic or a missionary church is a spiritually flourishing church and a church which drops the evangelistic or missionary character speedily lapses into being obsolete and decay. The history of the mission in Philippi draws back the curtain on the glorious vision that Jesus gave to the greatest missionary in Christian history. And we're given a glimpse into the direction, into the priorities, into the patterns that Jesus Himself sovereignly set for His church's mission. It's important for us to understand when we come to the book of Acts that while the main actors on the stage are the apostles, the director is Jesus. Uh, Luke's first letter, the Gospel of Luke, was what Jesus began to do and teach while He was in His earthly ministry. And He tells us that the book of Acts is really what Jesus continues to do and teach from His exalted place at the right hand of the Father. And so when we open this curtain on the ministry in Philippi, we're given a glimpse of what Jesus is sovereignly doing as He lays out the direction and the priorities and patterns that He has for His church. And the first thing I'd ask you to notice this evening is Jesus' sovereign direction for His servant's vision. Jesus' sovereign direction for His his servant's vision. When this episode opens, Jesus' servant, Paul, has begun what we call his second missionary journey. He's decided to revisit the churches that he and Barnabas planted to strengthen them, uh, to build them up. And he set out from the church in Antioch. He's headed north, northwest, if you follow a map. And then the most amazing and puzzling thing happens. Jesus doesn't allow him to preach the Word in the places that Paul had planned. Look at verses 6 and 7. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Talk about a plot twist. Why would Jesus not want the word spoken in those regions? Why would Jesus, by His Holy Spirit, forbid such a powerful gospel team from distributing the gospel? I'm glad you asked. There's a couple of clues in the text that tell us. Just look up at verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, if we were following the book of Acts through, we'd see that that little phrase or something like it shows up repeatedly in the book of Acts. And they increased in numbers daily. There was about 3,000 added to their number. A great many priests were added to their number. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke is really concerned to communicate the increase in numbers on the apostles' mission. Why? Well, it's not because he wants us to think that 
big is better and small is bad. It's not because he's a church growth pragmatist who thinks that the point is noses in the pews and nickels in the plate. No, it's because his purpose in his books, his book is to show us that Jesus, all that Jesus accomplished in God's purpose and God's plan. And that purpose and that plan flows out of a promise that he gave to Abraham. Listen, you'll remember it. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him that dishonors you I will curse. Here it is. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Now, it would just be thrilling if we had the time tonight to walk through the whole Old Testament and see how God protected that promise and how He preserved that promise and how He prospered that promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to David to the prophets. But that grand promise lands in a glorious vision in the book of Isaiah chapter 2. And here's what it says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations, hear the promise, all nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us us ways and we may walk in his paths. What a gracious promise and what a glorious vision. God will multiply His people from the offspring of Abraham into an uncountable multitude from every people, every nation who would receive His gracious blessing. Friends, that's why Luke is concerned about the numbers. He's showing us that Jesus has accomplished it. Jesus has inaugurated His kingdom. The multitudes are coming in. The peoples are being blessed. They are coming up to the presence of the Lord as the Word is preached. In Christ Jesus, all of those promises are yes. It's in Christ Jesus that the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles, that all those who have faith in Christ are blessed along with Abraham. And it's that glorious vision that we will see on that final day when we gather together around the throne, the great multitude that no man can number from every tribe and every nation, from all languages, standing before the throne, clothed in white robes and singing praise to our God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the promise and that's the vision. And when we pull back the curtain on this part of Paul's missionary story. He is doing faithfully what he knows, and he's going faithfully where he goes. And I say this reverently, but even Paul doesn't see the vision as big as it is. He's on the continent. He knows how to reach. And Jesus, once again, sovereignly arrests Paul on his journey And he shows him a bigger vision for the stewardship of his mission. The second clue that that's what's going on is found right at the end of verse 7. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That's a unique title in the book of Acts. 
the Spirit of Jesus. And what Paul, what Luke is doing is showing us that Jesus, from His exalted place at the right hand of the Father, by His Spirit, has sovereignly and directively, directly intervened to redirect His servant. Jesus' vision is beyond what even Paul, the best of His servants, has seen to this point. He's going to send him to people he could never have imagined. And so he gives his servant his vision. Very quickly, this little glimpse into the sovereignty of Jesus over his servant's mission teaches us at least two things. One, Jesus will fulfill his mission. The sinfulness of his people, the opposition of his enemies in the Old Testament couldn't thwart God's promise and God's plan. He sent His Son into the world to die on the cross for the sins of His people. He was raised from the dead, victorious and vindicated as the Son of God. And now with all authority in heaven and on earth, the sovereign Jesus is with His people by His Spirit until the end of the age to the ends of the world. And He will bring home every person from every tribe for whom He died on that cross. Even as He redirects His servants... And He redirects governments. And He redirects nations according to His sovereign wisdom. Jesus said this, I will build My church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Being a faithful church, being a faithful steward of the church's mission means believing Him, trusting Him, depending on Him, as we serve at His pleasure. Here's the second thing that little fact tells us. Jesus' vision will always be greater than even the best of His servants is. He wills to save more people from more nations than any of us can count. Being found faithful to His mission means not settling for what we've already seen we can do. Friends, settling for status quo is not apostolic and it's not Christ-like. And it's a great temptation when we feel that we're under attack. It's a great temptation when we feel like the entire world is closing in on us. Faithfulness to Jesus' mission means depending on Him to show us more people that we can reach, more places that He can send us, so that our covenant God receives more glory and more praise until the day that we are all gathered before His throne. It's the first thing I'd ask you to notice from this historic episode tonight. Jesus' sovereign direction over His servant's vision. But then would you notice what the faithful servant does in response to Jesus' sovereign direction? Verse 10, immediately he sought to go to the field that Jesus had shown him. He did immediately what his sovereign bid him do. And immediately he employed the methods that Jesus prescribed for his mission. Verse 10, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, here's a critical methodological insight for the church's mission. 
Jesus is sending us to a new field. He's sending us to a new culture that's got different customs, different politics, different philosophy, different morals. What methodology should take priority? Well, here's the Spirit-inspired apostolic conclusion. Preach a gospel. And that brings us to our second observation from this story. Jesus' sovereign prescription of His servant's priority. His sovereign prescription of His servant's priority. Paul's ministry reflex when he went to Philippi was to start preaching the gospel. Normally, Paul would start in a synagogue. But Philippi doesn't have a synagogue. So, on the Sabbath, he leads his team outside of the city to a place of prayer, and he begins to proclaim the Word. Just the other night, I had the privilege of having a conversation with a young man who has a summer-long ministry opportunity in front of him. And he contacted me to ask how he should go about conducting this ministry with a group of young people that are really skeptical about and think the Bible is kind of irrelevant. How should I do ministry amongst this kind of a people? I suppose somewhere in the back of my mind was Charles Spurgeon's little maxim. The Bible's a lion. Let it out of its cage and it'll fight for itself. Teach the Word, I told him. And let God attest to His own authority in their hearts and their minds. I think it is so instructive to see that in Philippi, in both the, watch this, in the place of prayer with God-fearers, and in the jail with a pagan Roman, Paul did exactly the same thing. He preached the Gospel. And the result... Lydia's heart was open to the gospel. She was baptized and her household. The jailer believed the gospel and his whole household, and they were all baptized. You notice right in the middle of the story, verse 17, even the demonized slave girl knows what Paul's strategy is. These are servants of the Most High God proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She wasn't wrong, she was just annoying. That's what was characterizing his ministry. That's what he was doing. Proclaiming, preaching the way of salvation, the gospel. Here's my point. When Jesus' servant went to the field that Jesus sent him to, it didn't matter whether the people had a Bible background or a secular background or a pagan background. It didn't matter whether the community were Jews, Greeks, or barbarians. His method was preach the gospel. Preach the gospel a lot. Preach the gospel every time. Because he believed and he knew that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. He believed and he knew that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And that fact, my friends, has at least two implications for the church's mission. It means this, that faithful churches and faithful pastors prioritize the primacy of preaching and the content of the preaching is the gospel on Jesus' mission. Whether the hearers are soaked in the Scripture or whether they've never heard the Scripture. One of our theological forebearers, Archibald Alexander, put it like this, God has indeed appointed the preaching of the gospel as the great instrument of the instruction and moral reformation of men. Listen to this. And nothing should be allowed to supersede this. For God is wiser than men 
and will moreover honor and bless his own institutions. Let it be admitted then that the faithful preaching of the gospel is the great means to which all others ought to be subordinate. Here's the second implication. Being faithful to the church's mission means the church must continually raise up the next generation of preachers. Paul's appeal goes this way in Romans 10, How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, for the church's mission to move forward to the ends of the earth until the end of the age, we need a whole new generation. We need a whole army of God-glorifying, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled, mission-hearted, Scripture-expositing preachers. And that means churches like this one sending their sons to bring the Gospel to others the way God sent preachers to bring the Gospel to you. But, being faithful to the sovereign Jesus' direction and Jesus' sovereign prescription for the priorities in ministry doesn't mean that the ministry is going to be conflict-free. In fact, it means quite the opposite. And that brings us to our third and final observation of the story of the mission in Philippi. Jesus' sovereign direction of His servant's vision. Jesus' sovereign prescription of His servant's priorities. Third, Jesus' sovereign prescription of His servant's cross-shaped pattern. Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband died with four other missionaries on a beach in Ecuador 65 years ago this month, Elizabeth Elliot wrote this, to be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross. Verses 16 to 24, we see that Paul and Silas are essentially canceled by the culture and the community. They weren't only painfully punished, they were publicly shamed. The charge is that they were creating a disturbance by advocating customs not lawful for citizens in the empire to accept or practice. They had, as it were, violated the social credit system. Verse 19 tells us that the Holy Spirit shows us that the root motivation was actually economic. The slave owners saw that their hope of gain from the girl's demonic oppression was gone. Jesus had liberated this young woman from a lifestyle that was demonically dominated. That's going to hinder the flow of money. And so the mob finds a piece of legislation, accuses them, drags them in the public square, and with the endorsement of the magistrate, attacks them, inflicting not only pain, but shame. And then they're imprisoned and chained in the deepest part of the jail. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is not only a typical pattern through Paul's mission, it's actually Jesus' prescribed cross-shaped pattern for His servants all the way through this age. Jesus told His disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Paul told the saints in other cities, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
He's going to write later to this church in Philippi, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Paul expected that serving Christ meant conforming to the pattern of the cross of Christ. And in this present darkness, that was going to mean suffering. And this has been the way it has been for the church throughout history. This is the way it is for the church throughout most of the globe. Like the 23-year-old Sunday school teacher, Galina, who was imprisoned in the Soviet Union for her work in teaching Sunday school. She was kept in prison. She was kept hungry. She was beaten. But she continued to share the gospel with people in the prison and lead people to the Lord. So they transferred her to another prison. And she kept leading people to the Lord. So they transferred her to another prison. And they kept, she kept leading people to the Lord. So finally they decided they'd send her to the gulag in Siberia. And they loaded her on a train with all of the worst of criminals. And as she was crammed on that train with the worst of criminals and they trudged, they trudged through the wilderness out to that gulag and the prisoners swore and the prisoners fought, Galena began to sing hymns and sing gospel hymns. And as Tim Casey tells the story, a hush fell over the mob and the toughest of the criminals began to weep and mile as mile after mile she sang the gospel. Or more recently, Jillian, who with her husband and family are missionaries in an Islamic country. And when the other missionaries were afraid to speak even the name of Jesus, they would simply talk about Jay. Jillian refused to keep silent about him. She soon discovered that her entire family was featured on a terrorist website complete with pictures of her children. Or the time she discovered they'd been betrayed by an infiltrator and a picture of her husband and other church leaders baptizing a new believer was given to the police and appeared on the front page of a national newspaper in an Islamic country. Jillian's husband and team continued to distribute the Word of God and to spread the Gospel. Preaching the biblical Gospel will lead to conflict in this age of present darkness. And here's what we need to know. That's not outside of Jesus' sovereign plan. In His providence and in His plan, He has purposed to glorify Himself and bear witness to His cross in the cross-shaped experience of His servants. And it's precisely that suffering in suffering for His name, for the Gospel, that Jesus so amazingly creates Gospel opportunities. Did you catch what happened with Paul and Silas? They're singing in the stocks. And an earthquake is sent and the jail opens and the, the chains come off. And as you notice, the jailer comes in and thinking that the prisoners have been set free, he's about to kill himself. What does Paul say? Do yourself no harm. We're all here. Now I have to confess to you, when I was studying for this story, I thought, not what I would have said. I probably would have said, Silas, keep quiet. This guy does this, we're gone. But Paul's heart's fixed on the glory of Christ. He's fixed on the Gospel going to all people. And where I would see an enemy, 
Christ's servant sees a gospel opportunity. Augustine said this about the church's enemies. He said, The church must bear in mind that amongst those very enemies are hidden her future citizens. And when confronted with them, she must not think it a fruitless task to bear with their hostility until she finds them confessing the faith. Perhaps in our present moment, pastors and churches need to hear that more than we ever have. And we need to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ in ways we never imagined that we'd have to. But loved ones, being faithful on Jesus' mission means we must embrace the cross with its pain and its shame for the glory of God and for the eternal good of those who at present are enemies of the cross. Let me conclude simply by saying to you as a church and to Matt as one of your new pastors, our sovereign Savior has given us a mission and we don't get to back up. And we don't get to run away. He has prescribed what our priority is to be. Preach the gospel. And He has purposed that sooner or later, one way or another, it will mean a personal encounter with the cross. May the Spirit of Jesus empower us to be fervent and faithful. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your glorious and Your gracious promise and purpose. We thank You for the way that in Your faithfulness and Your power, You have preserved it and You have brought the Lord Jesus. And the fact that Jesus will build His church is reflected in the fact that we're gathered here tonight. Lord, You are continuing to raise up servants to preach the Gospel, to go on the mission. And I pray for my friends at this church. I pray for Matt and Chris and the pastoral team. And Lord Jesus, would You give us eyes to see Your vision for all people in every nation, in every tribe, in every language to be gathered by the Gospel to give glory to our God for all eternity. And Lord, Would you, by your Spirit, empower your servants to be faithful and to be fervent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.